listening to VC Land, a podcast featuring leading VCs and investors who take us through their investment strategies, portfolio companies, what they like to look for in founders, sectors that are hot, what makes them finally invest, strategies for exit, whether companies should stay private or public, and tips and tactics for companies looking to work with VCs. Welcome to VC Land. My guest today on VC Land is Georgie Turner, Principal of Tidal Ventures, an Australian VC fund specialising in seed investments. Georgie Turner, welcome to VC Land. Thanks, Justin. Thanks for having me. Okay, Tidal Ventures. Tell us about the fund. Sure. So, um, Tidal is a venture capital fund. We invest at the seed phase into product-led founders that are looking to take their products to a global market. So we started the fund last year and it was really in response to a gap that we're seeing in the market at the early phases of the company, I would say. So I guess the, the kind of trend at the moment is that venture capitalists are raising larger and larger fund sizes. And this means that, you know, the deals are getting larger and that places quite a lot of focus on later stage financing rounds. So Series mm -hmm. A and beyond and that kind of leaves the early stages a bit as you know too hard too risky not worth the attention so we kind of felt that the Australian market was in need of a venture fund that could provide more than just capital by really focusing in on the requirements of the startup at the CFA yep. and getting involved with the heavy lifting around that and really setting the business up to get to those critical proof points that they need to hit to raise a series A round. So that, that you, it is literally the ground floor. It is. It's the ground floor. Um, you know, we, we, we think the early stages are really where the product innovation and the magic truly happens. And it takes a bit of a village around the founders and just so much elbow grease in addition to the capital to make a category leading business. And that's really the ethos of the ethos of title and what drives us and what gets us out of bed in the morning. Because that would have to be one of, I would think, only a handful or the only firm, VC firm, certainly in Australia, that specialises in that really early stage, the seed stage? Yes, there's, there's, um, there's plenty of investors that are looking at deploying capital at this stage, but we, we're actually really focusing in on it as a fund strategy. So we're raising a series of small funds that will focus on investing really specifically at that seed phase. Um, and, you know, we define that phase as the period of time that it takes for a venture-backed startup to demonstrate the proof points that they require to raise capital from an institutional investor. So mm -hmm. those, those portfolio companies that we invest in at the seed stage may go to um, a larger venture capital fund to raise their later stage rounds. Um, that's not to say that those venture capital funds won't invest at seed, but we're really um, one of the only, I think, um, more institutional funds that are focusing on that specific phase. So you mentioned you're only reasonably new. How did it all come about and, and who's on the team? How did you get together? Yeah, so um, we, we'd all been working together in different capacities for a little while. So there's me. I, I came from a, a growth stage venture capital background and I've also spent time as an operator on the sales and go-to-market side with a US-based cloud services business called Rackspace. And I had worked previously um, with Andrea Kowalski at my last fund. And Andrea is our US-based partner. So she's got mm -hmm. 
a um, extensive background in growth stage venture across Europe, Australia, now the US. I think I, I mentioned our founders are building global businesses. So Andrea is really our international voice on the team. And um, she had worked previously and invested quite a lot previously with Grant McCarthy, who is um, a very active seed investor in the Australian ecosystem. He's been around doing that for over 15 years. Um, and he originally came out of the sort of strategic partnerships world with Yahoo in Asia. And um, okay. Wendell and Grant had actually been working together on Grant's original portfolio um, of investments. And um, Wendell has a software engineering background. He's a, seri a serial ent entrepreneur. He's a product leader here in Australia. And he was, he was previously the head of product for Confluence at Atlassian. Okay, so let's let's talk through um, what you've got in your portfolio at the moment. Are there any any highlights you can point to? So we've done about um, a handful of about ten investments to date, um, mostly sort of across the B two B software as a service workflow kind of products, multi sided online marketplace, some fintechs and agtech. Um, one one that I'll talk about because it's topical. In the current environment is um, a company called Shipit. So the founders, Rob and Will, two mates, started the company about five years ago after yep. experiencing all the inefficiencies in Australian logistics through their, their corporate jobs in FMCG. And the product itself, it really has two components. Um, software as a service for online retailers to manage the workflow around booking a courier for deliveries yep. out to customers. So I know Shipit. It's a great business. Yeah, yeah, they've, they've been really successful. Um, big customers like Sephora, all the way down to sort of SMB, mid-market size retailers. And then the second thing that they do is that they actually provide access to affordable um, delivery rates for those customers. So the SaaS customers can opt to use those if they don't already have pre-agreed rates with their career of choice. So the, the reason why I think it's special is because it's it's really what we call a SaaS network product they've mm. been able to mm. aggregate a bunch of retailer volume on one side of the network by adding value through a workflow tool and then they integrate with all the couriers on the other side which accumulates significant volume of retailer shipping spend and courier performance data and this actually gives them then the right to build and offer affordable reliable delivery products um, that are kind of customized for the retailer and they can become a virtual carrier of sorts, which enables them to command a much higher margin than your typical disaggregated courier. Hmm. And then because they have all of the data and the visibility, they can drastically improve the courier handoff efficiency within a given logistics network, which also has the added benefit of reducing the environmental impact of e-commerce logistics. So the reason why I mention them is just because they're an exciting one to watch. They're, they're seeing a spike in online delivery volume. <laughs> I bet the they market, are. <laughs> Who doesn't want something delivered straight to the front door? Yeah, and what's really interesting is seeing that data come through during COVID has been just how sustained it's been and sticky it's yes. been throughout the shutdowns and the reopenings. So it's a really important indicator, I guess, for the more permanent increase that we're likely to see in e-commerce volumes across the country in a post-COVID world. When you're talking about making an investment at the seed stage, what is the general, if, you, if I can use that term, uh, size of um, potential investment? What sort of ticket size are you looking at? So we'll look at, it really depends on the stage of the company, but we'll look yep. at anything from a 300K um, 
200k to 300k pre-seed um, check size all the way up to if the business is a little bit more mature we'll look at deploying around a million um, generally um, you know we want to deploy about one one to 1.3 per company over the course of their seed phase it doesn't all have to be up front sometimes it can be tranched in over time um, yeah and and who are some of your investors? Who are the people who are actually putting the money into Tidal? So it's a it's a pretty wide range. Um, we well, Grant had an original um, portfolio of businesses uh, that he had invested in, and all of his original uh, backers from that fund have come in on this fund. Quite a few high net worth individuals in the fund, as well as mm-hmm. family offices. Okay, so let's go through the process the title looks at when you assess a deal. The process itself is, is fairly standard. The deal leads come in um, directly through the website um, or through our network, and we, we do an initial screen of the opportunity, which usually inco- it includes a call with the founder. Mm-hmm. Um, then we just lay out all the things that we like and where we see the risks. We, we work within our Notion workspace, which is actually... Um, you know, we're, we're across multiple time zones, so we work quite asynchronously across that um, using Notion. And then we all meet on Wednesday mornings to chat through our deal flow and solicit viewpoints and questions from the investing team. And um, these meetings are probably the, the best and the most interesting part of how we operate as a fund because yeah. we all come from really diverse backgrounds. We have a very open culture, so there's inevitably a lot of heated debate and it's a great, <laughs> it's a great learning environment. Um, the deal looks interesting. It goes through to our investment process, which is, is also pretty straightforward. So we develop a thesis around the market. We do an in-depth assessment of the product and we often workshop the product horizons with the founder at that point as well. Um, and then we also look at the capital requirement that the business needs to hit the proof points that they need to get to for the next round of financing. And if, all of that stacks up, we'll have the founder presented our investment committee um, and then it goes through to final approval from the from the partner team. In terms of what we look for, um, there's probably five main areas that we need to see for title to make an investment. So the first one is, is a founding team that brings a deep understanding of the customer problem that needs to be solved and and then the skill sets required to build an exceptional product offering around that. Mm. Uh, the business needs to be in its seed phase, obviously. Yeah. And uh, we look for markets, markets that are, are big, but mainly ripe for disruption and, and where there are tailwinds in place that are actually driving some kind of change in how the value creation flows within the industry. So. I mean, logistics e-commerce is a perfect example of that as well as yes. enterprise productivity, for example. Um, and then the fourth thing we look for is really um, a business model that has the capacity to provide excellent unit economics and create immense shareholder value over time. So usually this this starts with a B2B or a B2B2C structure. We don't, we don't do a lot of B2C models. Um, the models that we tend to look at are software as a service, network, based models, marketplace models, um, or like consumption models like API businesses, for example. Yeah. Um, and in particular with the model, the two things that really matter to us are, are pretty much like how much you charge the customer and the margins that you get off that. So 
we're always looking for founders that have cracked some clever way to acquire customers without needing to deploy significant sales and marketing resource. <laughs> the holy grail. <laughs> the holy grail, that's right. Um, and then finally, and this is probably one of the most important things for our, for our team specifically, we look for products that have the capacity to be really, really disruptive. So the product should be providing the customer with the customer with a significant competitive advantage and it should be so mission critical that the customer can't live without it. Mm. When you're getting together as a group and you're assessing a deal, is I imagine there's a very diverse range of opinions. Um, mm. <laughs> what's that? What's that like when you when you're sort of tearing apart, you know, a slide deck or thinking about a potential investment? I imagine there's there's big diversity of thought. There is, yeah. We we are a very diverse team, which I think is a real strength that we have as well. You know, we're fifty percent um, female on the team. We've also got you know technical and product backgrounds, uh, as well as you know sales and go to market backgrounds, as well as more traditional investing backgrounds. So, and everybody has invested across multiple different industries. And as you always find with investors, we've had, um, I guess, experiences with different markets and different models and that always comes into play. Do you always have to agree? We don't. So we don't need a unanimous decision to make an investment. Okay. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's, um, I would say it's, it's rare that we, I, I wouldn't say that it's rare that we all agree, but it's not uncommon that each deal will receive a healthy amount of challenge from at least one partner. So robust our, feedback. Yeah, <laughs> but our process works because it's it's based on a system of mutual respect and everybody understands that the onus is on them as the deal lead to first of all get the team excited or at the very least comfortable around the deal. And and then secondly, invest within the bounds of what we are trying to actually achieve collectively as a fund, which is which is bigger than the individual. And how long does that process normally take? Is it, you know, from, from the first email that slides into an inbox to writing a check, is that uh, a couple of weeks, a couple of months? Talk us through how, like, the time frame involved. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it varies really widely. I think every, every investor will say that if, if um, everything stacks up and the business fits within our sweet spot and they want to raise capital straight away and, and we're keen, it can be, you know, as little as two or three weeks mm. worth of work. Um, but we often will meet with founders early in their process of building their product and work with them for months and months and months before we make an investment. When you finally meet with founders face-to-face, -face, you get to eyeball them. Uh, what are some of the questions that you typically ask of them? Um so I don't have any any clever psychoassessment questions that I yes. that I will ask, but I will always ask and usually begin with their story and their background and try to have a conversation with them about why they started the business in the first place. There's obviously inevitably going to be multiple questions about the business and the product and the market and, and how much capital they're trying to raise and that kind of thing. But I think... This is a, it you know when you when you make an investment with a person, it is a very personal uh, decision because you are committing to spend quite a lot of time working together um, yes. over the course of the lifetime of the investment, and I think you can gauge um, 
how genuine people are just through that that initial conversation and um if you can get to a level where you're understanding each other on what drives each of you it helps you get to a um a good mutual relationship up front have you ever had a situation where you've looked at a deal on paper and it stacks up it looks really good but when you've met the founder for whatever reason it just hasn't been quite right there's definitely been times where I've really liked the market, I've really liked the product, but I haven't felt that the founder is um, doing it for the right reasons. Or more more commonly, it would be that the founder needs some additional um, skill sets within their founding team. We, we invest in a lot of um, we don't invest in a lot of solo founders. I would say okay, yeah. Um, usually, usually um, it, it's it's completely um, unreasonable to expect a founder to bring domain expertise, product expertise, technical expertise, and commercial Great at sales, yeah, and everything. Yeah. Mm. That's right. So I, when I think about the founder, I, it, it's less about the individual and more about the team that they're bringing. And then we, we think about where we can sub in on that. But yes, yes, that has happened before. And, and of course, the flip side would be is if you've seen something and you're not quite sure, perhaps it didn't quite stack up, the metrics weren't right, but you met the founder or the founders and the team and were blown away uh, by their passion, their enthusiasm, their expertise, and that maybe changed your mind. That happens more often than the former. Mm. Um, so that's why I, I tend to try to take a meeting as often as I can because I it's usually the person um, who gets you over the line at the end of the day and their understanding of the problem space and, and their expertise that, that helps convince you to bring you along on the journey. And that in itself is a really important trait to have because that founder needs to be able to um, inspire people to come along with them on the journey, whether it's employees or whether it's investors. And um, you get a sense of that in the first call with them. So how then, um, how, how do you source your deal flow? Where do, where do your leads come from? I imagine they come from a little bit of everywhere, but like give us a sense of the scale of like how many emails come in or calls or um, deals that come across Tidal's desk in any you know given day or week or month. So they, they come from a variety of sources. We get a lot through our network, um, other founders that are sending things yes. to us, um, people that we've worked with before that are sending things to us. Um, angel investors, because we're because we're squarely on the early stage, a lot of angel investors know that we will go early, so we'll get a lot of stuff from angels. Yeah. Um, we get we get sent deals from um, all the all the big venture capital funds in Australia who have decided it's too early for them, and they'll they'll send that down to us as well. Um, yeah. And then all of the regular channels, like we have um, founders, can come to us direct through our website. They can come to us through LinkedIn. Um, and we'll, we'll, we'll attend um, demo days for accelerator programs and things like that to see um, the talent that's coming out of those. And it, it, it ebbs and flows. I think any VC will tell you they'll have nothing and then they'll have loads of stuff. <laughs> when <laughs> it rains, it pours. Yeah. That's right. Um, but I would say probably I'll probably look at about 10 deals a week and I'll probably yeah. be actively pursuing maybe um, three at a time. You've mentioned before uh, some of the sectors you like to uh, invest in. Uh, what do you see as some of the, the hotter market segments 
uh, certainly in Australia at the moment. So we are kind of less inclined to think about things in terms of sectors. Um, we look at them more in terms of thematics. I'll, I'll expand on that, but um, sectors themselves, we are we're looking at developing a thesis around certain sectors at the moment. So cybersecurity is one for obvious reasons. Yeah, yes. Um, education, education technology, we think um, has some legs to do something interesting over the next 10 years in a post-COVID world. Mm. Some of our original theses around e-commerce and logistics will remain. Um, and so those are, those are ones that we're looking at. Um, but, but what we do is we, rather than looking at the um, sort of the industry vertical, we tend to go deeper on the thematic around the technology itself. So um, an example of that would be we have a strong thesis at the moment around the automation of repeatable workflows within teams. So we're looking at a lot of tools that play into this particular product thing, although the market application itself is quite horizontal. And then um, similarly, we have a thesis around businesses becoming increasingly digital and transacting with their customers more and more online. Um, That creates the need to track customers through a funnel and optimize customer intent with sophisticated data and, and tooling along the way. And that thesis is pervasive across all industries. So it's not just e-commerce, retail and online travel, but it's moving into other legacy industries now, like insurance and banking. And um, there will be tools that have a wider horizontal application across those. So let's just say you make an investment. Uh, the business, um, the startup is is on its journey. What are you then looking for in the next say, six months to 12 months from those founders and that business? What are, what, what are the things that you like to sort of go through your checklist and you start ticking the boxes? Yeah, sure. So um, the once we've made the investment, usually our portfolio companies are on uh, their sort of path to the next fundraising round, which is usually mm. their Series A. Yeah. Um, and there are a number a number of ways that you can get your business to a successful Series A outcome. Depends a lot on on the um, the product and how you're going to market with it. But there are kind of three key things that we think founders need to be able to show in their business in order to get that away. And um, the first one is really the sophistication of the product itself, being able to strongly demonstrate uh, product market fit, and that can be done in a multitude of ways. It can be, you know, paying customers, it can be uh, user user signups, and it can be engagement with the product itself. So um, we work with them on that. And then um, the second one is is really the, the ability to acquire customers in a repeatable and a scalable way. So mm-hmm. in the early stages of the company, they might be talking to um, you know, power users, early users, um, and, you know, that, that's always very... Um, you know, it's always great validation of the product, but how can you then take that validation and scale it out to a wider market and find a way to get customers on board um, with a low acquisition cost in a way that's got a, some sort of repeatable playbook attached to it? Um, and and that is how you convince a Series A investor effectively to put capital behind your business because they can see that if I put a million dollars in the top of the funnel, then I'm going to get five out the bottom. And that's mm. kind of the the um, 
that's kind of the system that you need to be able to show. And then um, the, the last part is really the, the breadth of skills within the team. So they'll, they'll usually be at the point where we invest a couple of founders and a couple of developers. And um, we're, we're trying to broaden out the skills that that, that that founding team need. And that usually comes in the form of growth hires um, and, more, and sometimes more sophisticated technical hires as well. And Georgie, what's your advice to startup founders that are on the pathway looking for funding? What's your advice on how to best approach a VC firm? Okay, so um, the first thing I would probably say is uh, make sure you're a fit for VC capital. Not all founders are, not all business types are. Um, so a couple of you know a couple of ways of maybe checking that is you know is it a founder led business number one venture capital yeah. funds generally want to invest in founders um and then number two um you know is there a, a really large addressable market with a pervasive problem that you're solving within that market so those are a couple of questions you could ask yourself and then the actual process itself i would actually go to the effort of trying to match your startup with venture capitalists that are likely to invest in your type and stage of business. So if you know you're early, um, you know, you can find different angel networks, you can find seed investors, and there's a lot of content out there online about who mm. these people are and how and where they invest and what kind of check sizes they deploy. Yep. So um, I would do that first. And then I don't necessarily agree with this, but a lot of, a lot of VCs don't have the time or capacity to look at deals that come in cold. So it's always better if you can hustle your way to a warm introduction, of course. Yes. So um, go ahead and, and try to do that if you can. But, um, you know, Tidal, for example, we will accept cold um, cold approaches through our, our website. Yeah. And then um, if you can get an initial meeting, then if the if, if your opportunity days. is quality, then it should, yeah, it should speak for itself. What's your assessment of the Australian VC market at the moment? So we are in Australia, I think, becoming a lot more um, sophisticated and developed as an ecosystem. We have big venture capital funds raising um, large amounts of capital enough to be able to compete with, with international investors, which is really important. Because you hear a lot saying, oh, don't, don't raise money in Australia, you need to head overseas. That, that I think is nuanced and depends on what stage of business you're at. Um, yep. I think that there's there's pros and cons to either. In the early stages of the business, I do think that there's a lot to be said for raising in your region and having the active support of an investor that overlaps pretty significantly with your time zone and, mm. um, and also can introduce you to other investors and sources of capital in that region. Um, and so we think... Um, raising your angel and your seed round um, in Australia. If Australia is where really your team is going to be built out, then then that's great. I think COVID's changed a lot of this because we are so much more virtual and international than we used mm -hmm. to be. And that's so right. Yeah. It, it doesn't matter as much. But the one thing I would say is that if you are addressing an international market, you should be building relationships with international investors throughout the life cycle of your company. Because the business case for raising international capital starts to stack up as the business gets bigger, um, particularly if you're looking at entering, you know, if you're looking at entering the U.S. market, for example, 
and you want to place people there and acquire customers there, um, US investors can provide a much better view on the local market dynamics um, and help you unlock talent in that market as well, the key people that you need to hire. And then, and then when the business starts to come to the sort of back end of its life cycle and, and if you're pursuing an exit, it really helps to have investors that are in the region where your potential acquirers are. So what about your investors, the people that are putting money into the fund? What are they looking for? So our investors are looking to generate a return. <laughs> and um, But are they and- patient? Do they know that this could be, you know, it's it's potentially a bit of a bit of a crapshoot, so to speak, that, you know, this may work, it might not work, my returns might not materialize for many, many years. Sure, yeah. What they're looking for is to de-risk their exposure to what is potentially a lucrative part of the investing cycle by um, getting access to a fund strategy. So they get they get a couple of things if they go through a fund. They get a team that is really focused on that that specific segment. So they get specialization, which de-risks. And, yep. then, and then they also get a portfolio of companies. So um, titles, titles investors, for example, understand that not every single portfolio company is going to make it all the way through and become a unicorn. But <laughs> It's not the next be, Facebook. Yeah, that's right. Um, but there will be a distribution. Um, across the portfolio companies and and some will make it really big and some will not make it at all and the others will end up in between. And so blended that gets them to um, what what we expect would be a solid return profile. Georgie Turner, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Georgie from Tidal Ventures, thank you so much for joining us on VC Land today. Thanks for having me.